Welcome back, fellow survivors, to another episode of A Rail Tour of Post-Apocalyptic England. Without further ado, I shall deal with the cliffhanger from the last episode. Yes, Annette Vasca did shoot me, but I am more or less fine. It's not easy creating tension in a first-person narrated podcast. People will assume you survive. Nevertheless, I was shot. Why was I shot? Well, Annette Vasca had been demanding the train leave and when the engineer was not terribly impressed with threats towards him, she shot me to demonstrate she was very serious. Which, in fairness to Vasca, did work. As for me, well, I was shot in the arm, and what many have assured me was only a minor injury. Vasca has also claimed she had only meant to give me a minor injury, and she knew exactly what she was doing. I remain unconvinced, and have argued for a court-martial, or some similar tribunal, to get justice. The captain has assured me, though, that while the letter of the law is on my side, due to the fact that Vasca's actions saved the soul, she doubted a jury would convict. And as the captain is essentially all law and order on board, it seems silly to bother pressing the issue. I think what irks me most is that Vasca has not apologised. Anyway, moving on from my injury, once out of the range of the creatures, the crew and passengers have slowly come to appreciate the danger they were in, and how we placidly waited to be slaughtered. Speaking only for myself, I still do not feel afraid, and I have to force the knowledge that yes, I was in danger to stay in my mind. I was somebody who completely remembered the creatures, but busied themselves with other jobs. I always knew we were in danger, but it just wasn't high on my to-do list. The real question is, and many of you have asked this, why wasn't Vasca affected by the creatures? Everyone else on board succumbed to the creatures' powers as soon as they were near them. Dr. Junker, our resident psychiatrist, has come to the conclusion that Annette Vasca is immune to the creatures because... because she is a well-adjusted person and doesn't need to protect herself with psychological defence mechanisms. She harbours no malice to her parents, has no fear of failure or inadequacy issues, she doesn't rely on alcohol or opium to get through the day, I would say she's normal, but to be so happy and grounded seems to make her truly exceptional. Despite saving everyone on board, Vasca has found herself even less popular than before because of this annoying level of happiness. But because she doesn't tie up her own self-work with how others perceive her, not even this has bothered her. So all's well that ends well. I mean, yes, 48 people were killed by the creatures, but no use crying over spilled milk. In truth, many of the crew and passengers were rather shaken by the whole business, and the rumour is that a number of people spoke to the captain about leaving the train. Most of us are free to simply leave the train whenever we want, but most people want to leave somewhere relatively safe, and that can take some arranging. For the time being then, no one will be leaving the train. This week's episode is focused on the complicated concept and reality of time travel. There are still some people who do not believe in time travel, whereas most people accept it as something that does happen. But really, it does you no good to worry too much about it. The timeline may change, your past may change, you might be erased from history altogether, who knows? But there's probably nothing you can do about it. One thing that seems apparent, the real world is a more complicated place than the neat theories of time travel. The captain was eager to get on with our journey after such a long delay, and soon we were rattling along at quite a pace, hidden towards a city that seemed inhabited. It had electricity, and actually seemed in remarkably good condition from what we could tell. We slowed down as we approached, and marvelled at what was before us. 
The city we were approaching was an odd collection of ancient monuments, elegant skyscrapers, grand Victorian buildings, and Renaissance palaces. Everywhere you looked, there was some new marvel to wander at. According to map, we were in the vicinity of what had been Bristol, and while I had never been there before, I doubted it had looked like this. The train station was an exact reproduction of Circassie Station from Istanbul, or so Emmet Barak, one of the computer programmers on board, told me. He also told me the station had been destroyed in the fire that had consumed much of the city at the start of the apocalypse. We all realised something very odd was going on, but quite frankly, we're used to odd things going on, so we managed to adjust quite well. Circassie Station is indeed rather beautiful, a classic Art Nouveau construction, a glorious introduction to the city of Istanbul, but we weren't in Istanbul. Just on the journey in, I had recognised buildings from Japan, Peru, Australia, and from dozens of other countries, all buildings that I believed had been destroyed. What was this place? A number of us got off the train and began to wander around the station. If this was a replica, then it was an incredible one. I walked out of the building and was confronted by the Taj Mahal's majestic presence. Behind it ran a section of the Great Wall of China. It was unnerving to say the least. In under an hour, I took in more amazing sights than a person could fit in over the course of many months of travelling. That if these were actual buildings, and not mere replicas. Assuming they were real, how would it have been accomplished? And to what purpose? Other people from the train were wandering about this astounding city, and every time I moved into someone, they told me of another monument, another building, another work of art. I was now suitably impressed. But where were the people? We knew the place was inhabited. Why were they avoiding us? Should I expect to see a collection of great people to match the monuments? I soon worked out the odd layout of this city. Everything surrounded a central point. A modest country estate with a modest country home. Unlike the other buildings, I did not recognise it. Well, in truth I did. It was like a thousand other buildings in the English countryside, but it was of no particular significance. With its unassuming nature, it stood out. As I reached the house, there was a man sitting in a deck chair, reading a book, on the table beside him, a glass of wine. He was a man in late middle age, grey hair, a little overweight, and if I had to guess, I would have said he was a stockbroker. Somebody who worked with money at any rate. I was just pleased for once that he didn't look at all dangerous. He held up a finger, gesturing for me to wait. He finished the book and snapped it shut. I assume you came on the train, he said. Why don't you come in for a cup of tea? I followed the man inside, and he explained everything. Correspondence First, I shall deal with the question raised by many of you. What happened to the doomsday device that had been stolen? We don't know, but as we're still here, either they haven't set it off, or they have, and it hasn't worked. If the latter is true, then we have nothing to worry about. And if it's a former, I would say they probably won't ever set it off. As, what percentage are not setting off a doomsday device ASAP? There is no right moment to strike. You just set it off, and everyone dies. So while inquiries are still being made, I think it's safe for most of us to forget all about it. And some people have been banging on about how irresponsible we've been with the doomsday devices. So let me say this. We are the only people trying to keep these out of the wrong hands, so I think everyone needs to be a bit more appreciative of our efforts. After all, we've only lost one. Next up, Bolomar, originally from Alti, but currently heading south, asks, A lot of odd things have happened since the apocalypse. 
how do we know what are real and what are just stories? As we're travelling through forests, I want to know about Shurala. Are they real? Excellent question, Bullamore. After all, vampires are now real. Zombies are now real. Werewolves are now real. So who knows what to believe? I have done some research as I was unfamiliar with Shurala, but they are spirits and, as Bolomar suggested, live in forests. They have very long fingers and a horn on their forehead and, amongst other things, tickle people to death. As they have shapeshifting abilities, they are very dangerous and cunning creatures. The important question is, are they real? We do have a settled policy on this podcast that we don't give credence to supernatural creatures. We are scientific rationalists around here. But just because we don't believe in spirits doesn't mean there isn't a creature like Ishurala that exists. I've checked with our resident neo cryptozoologist Dr. Yana Klemenko, and she said that she has no proof that they exist, but did want me to warn you about the Makake, creatures similar to vampires and are found in and around Mongolia. They are most definitely real. Last question for this week, Hawa from Kital asks, what is the population of the world? Ah, now this isn't as simple as all that. Before the apocalypse, the population was close to 8 billion. In the immediacy of the apocalypse, it has been estimated that at least 4 billion were killed. Another 2 billion were lost to the result in war, disease, starvation and so on. So, using maths, that's 2 billion left. But as to whether the population has gone up or down since then has aroused a lot of debate. The central government authority insists it does not know the population. But if there's one thing a government knows, it's how many people it governs. So they must have some idea, but have decided to keep it to themselves. The next question is how we count the so-called shadow populations. People infested with mind-controlled and parasites, children who are taken for the rainfall experiments, and all the other people who are of somewhat dubious humanity. Some people have put the shadow populations as possibly running to the hundreds of millions. Unfortunately, that's the best I can tell you, however. I hope that will do for now. Back to the narrative. So, you're a time traveller, I asked. Sebastian smiled weakly at my question. No, not quite. Everyone travels in time. You are constantly moving through time yourself, but you only move through time in one direction, at one speed. I don't know what I'd call myself. Time controller sounds a bit pretentious. Maybe it was pretentious, but I couldn't think of anything better. Sebastian could alter the past, present and future. He could stop time, slow it down, speed it up. Of course, as Sebastian explained, as time and space are not separate entities, control and time gave him control over space as well. It's how I moved everything here, he said, pointing at the buildings outside. Why only bring buildings that were destroyed? The train station has been damaged in the fire. Sebastian interrupted me. Richard, please. It's not something that other people can grasp, but to put it simply, there are a set number of atoms in the universe, and if I duplicate something by bringing it forward in time, there are more atoms than there should be. That causes problems. Even when the train station was destroyed, the atoms still exist. I nodded. Okay, I said. So where is it? Where is the time machine? There isn't one, said Sebastian, and he explained there was no technology involved, nor had he been bestowed with any special powers. It was really a little more than a formula and a way of looking at the universe. 
The formula wasn't even especially complicated, not by the standards of the mathematics that hold the universe together. It covered just a half a sheet of A4. As I was saying, Sebastian said, we all move through time and space. You don't do anything to make it possible to travel forward in time, in the same way I don't try to travel a thousand years in the future. I just do it. It was mind-blowing. I mean, he showed me the equation, and I could make sense of it at all. And he explained his way of looking at the universe. And well, to cut a long story short, I'm not a time controller. Sebastian explained that no one else had understood it either. It was just him. I've got to ask you something, I said to Sebastian. The apocalypse. Why haven't you stopped it? Oh, I have, said Sebastian, absentmindedly taking a sip from his cup of tea. But I had to put it back. Paradoxes and all that. That's the real problem, time controlling. It's not of any real practical use. Not that I found, anyway. Sebastian had spent a long time trying out his powers to see what he could do with them, and he always found himself back at square one. He had tried dozens of ways of stopping the apocalypse, but either it still happened in just a slightly different way, or he just created a paradox. If, in 2050, you look back at the world, and scenario A prompts you to go back and change event A, so that scenario A never happens, what happens when it gets back to 2050? There's nothing to prompt you to go back in time and fix it. It's the typical time traveller problems that have been explored by scientists, philosophers and science fiction novelists. I didn't give up on using Sebastian's remarkable powers for good. Couldn't he save people? Not really. Anyone he saved would be an anomaly outside of time. And again, there will be too many atoms in the universe. Besides, the ramifications of unleashing a person who should be dead were horrifying. Okay then, could he make himself rich and give them money to worthy causes? No, the economy is far too delicate to withstand such meddling, and invariably things became worse. He couldn't even travel through time and meet great thinkers, as meeting Sebastian invariably became the most important event of their life. Isaac Newton never got round to even thinking about gravity after he met Sebastian. The most useful thing he had ever found was moving beautiful things moments before they were destroyed. And had he even stopped doing that? There were always consequences. Sebastian showed me his study. A room filled with chalkboards covered in equations and information. Different scenarios, different ways for history to play out. And every one, Sebastian explained, led only to paradoxes and disappointment. I'm so sick of paradoxes, said Sebastian. The grandfather paradox. The bootstrap paradox. We even create some new ones. The blackjack paradox. The snowshoes paradox. Most frustrating of all, the chasing sparrow paradox. I could see frustration within Sebastian. Almost unlimited power, but with no way to use it. Sebastian finished his explanation. So there you go. A complete understanding of time, and in a practical sense, useless. He sighed dramatically. Still... I believe working it out is important. Knowledge and understanding are the two most important things in this world. I couldn't quite understand what Sebastian was telling me, and he poured me a glass of whiskey, taking away my untouched tea. These days, I read a lot, play music, take care of the city as best I can, he said. Wait, I asked. What about the people in the city? Sebastian looked unhappily at me. Ah, those... I was hoping you didn't know about those. The 
following is a statement from those benevolent bureaucrats, the central government authority. Fellow survivors, this is a reminder to all citizens that all tax returns must be submitted and all money owed paid by January 31st. Failure to comply could result in a 1,000 mark fine and being officially labelled as selfish. Rebuilding civilization is an expensive undertaking and we need every mark to make this happen. As well as expanding the reach of the CGA and helping those in need, remember your taxes pay for vital services used by those living under CGA control. Services like medical treatment, government postal service, red plague vaccination programs, zombie eradication, doppelganger registration and storage, refuse collection, library services, nightmare control offices, and psychic calendars. So do your bit for the post-apocalyptic world and pay your taxes. Remember, they keep the unspeakable horrors at bay. In life, only two things are certain, death and taxes. Choose one. This message was brought to you by the Ministry of Post-Apocalyptic Reconstruction. And now, back to the narrative. The people, Sebastian explained, were the assorted oddities, refugees and paradox survivors that messing with time travel created. Sebastian was eager to point out that it wasn't his actions that had caused these problems. No, rather it was due to other time travellers and the natural problems that developed within the timeline, as apparently that happens. The people weren't here to ask Sebastian to restore their place in their timelines, but rather to be in a place where they could fit in. There were people who had survived the perfectly uneventful maiden voyage of the cruise ship Titanic, soldiers from Napoleon's victorious Grand Army who had conquered Britain, and people like John Frederick Porter, the heroic police officer who saved Abraham Lincoln from being assassinated at Ford's Theatre, all of whom did not fit with the current timeline. Sebastian also assured me that the idea of a correct timeline is entirely without merit. For these people, Sebastian's city is a welcome refuge where they can blend in, but for some it is a deadly necessity. Sebastian and I talked at length about other time travellers, who Sebastian regards as a mix of condescension and annoyance, none of whom care about the damage their travelling does to the universe. These people congregated here because it was like the light of other stars during the day, the sun blocks it out. So great were Sebastian's powers that any trifling time traveller or paradox survivor was virtually invisible. Sebastian had a difficult relationship with these people. He was a kind-hearted soul, so couldn't turn them away, but their presence was difficult for him to bear. He explained in that much the same way as I had a physical presence which could feel pain by someone applying pressure, or become too hot by turning up the heating, Sebastian had a temporal presence that other people travelling in time and always displaced within it, caused him pain and discomfort. This was also part of the reason he disliked the self-appointed time police. Their so-called legal time travelling caused as much pain as any other traveller. Sebastian was also some of a temporal environmentalist. He disdained doing anything that would damage the temporal environment, while other time travellers were indifferent to the damage they did. It was in much the same way that before the apocalypse, many people drove cars, indifferent to the damage they knew they were doing to the environment. I could have talked with Sebastian for hours. In fact, to dedicate your life to writing down what this man had to say about the universe would be a life well spent. 
but I could sense Sebastian was growing weary, explaining what he must have explained to everyone else who passed through the city. I'm surprised more people from the train haven't come to see you, I said. Sebastian shrugged. I'm sure they would have, but I just wanted to talk to one person. You seemed the right choice. I thought about this statement, and thought about all the tricks Sebastian had for preventing people from finding his house, and I thought back to how easily I had found it. I thanked him for his time and left. I was so lost in my thoughts that at first I didn't notice the person standing outside. He was a tall, intimidated man, bald but with a thick and full grey beard. He wore a long brown leather coat and carried something akin to a revolver, but with perhaps a few more bells and whistles attached. He looked me up and down. Are you a line runner? he asked gruffly. No, I replied. I had no idea what a line runner was, but guessed correctly that this was the right thing to say. The man seemed satisfied and brushed past me. Get out of here, he said, and entered Sebastian's house. This must have been one of the people Sebastian had told me about. Those who saw it as their duty to police the timeline, who would eliminate those who shouldn't exist. Naturally, Sebastian was at the top of their list. But he hadn't seemed too concerned about them, and thinking about the truly awesome power Sebastian wielded, neither was I. A line runner, I worked out, was presumably what they called someone from a timeline that no longer existed. I stood outside, waiting, listening for any commotion coming from the house, but it was silent. After another minute, I decided to go inside and see what was going on. I crept quietly back inside and followed the faint sound of talking. I reached the doorway of the study, the door slightly ajar, when there was a tremendously loud shot. I pushed the door open and Sebastian slumped in one of his chairs, dead. I watched the killer slowly holster his weapon and then he turned to me. You killed him, I said. He killed himself, he replied in a matter-of-fact way. I've been trying to kill him for years. To even get close to him, he had to allow it. He allowed all this. He wanted it. The killer rested his hand on his gun. I told you to get out of here. But I'm not a line runner, I argued. Says you, said the killer. Everyone in the city is a line runner. So I ran, stumbling down the stairs and dashed outside, crashing through the door and landing in a heap on the ground. The killer was standing in the doorway behind me, gun in his hand. He was about to fire when I heard someone shout something in French and he dived back inside as a volley of gunfire struck the house. I rolled over and saw what was unmistakably a platoon of Napoleonic soldiers being led by a woman holding a cavalry sabre in one hand and in the other waving a French flag bearing the imperial coat of arms. The first line quickly reloaded as the second line took aim. The killer returned fire and dug back as they fired. I began to crawl away, desperate to just get out of the crossfire. I was rather pleased to see Sebastian's killer in considerable trouble, outnumbered by the soldiers. That was until reinforcements arrived. Men and women appeared out of nowhere at the corners of the streets, wearing the same style of brown leather coat that Sebastian's killer wore. It didn't take long for the whole city to be alive with fighting. A wild collection of people who shouldn't exist fighting the brown leather coat wearing time police. It was a bizarre and dangerous journey back to the train. The strongest contingent of the line runners were the Napoleonic troops, who despite using the period appropriate weaponry were a formidable fighting force and had even brought in artillery. Not all the line runners were using such antiquated weapons. I passed one woman 
who possessed a gun that caused the target to explode in a puff of blood-red mist. I ran underneath a steam-powered tripod armed with a devastating heat ray. Unfortunately, Sebastian's carefully maintained collection of monuments were proven to be a fragile battleground. At one point, I did see Annette Vesca's team of cultural treasure seekers rescuing artworks from a collapsing Academia Gallery, the one-time Florentine gallery containing, amongst other treasures, Michelangelo's David. Vasquez's team had seemingly held off on their civic-minded looting until the fighting had begun, but were now getting as much as they could. It became clear that despite their tenacity, the line runners were losing this battle. Their enemy were united in a way they weren't, and as soon as individuals decided to cut and run, the battle was over. I finally managed to make it back to the train. Our soldiers still controlled the station, but stayed out of the fighting. I climbed on board and made my way to my carriage. I collapsed in my favourite chair and breathed a sigh of relief, handing my coat to Knox and asking him to fix both of us a cocktail. The train started to move. Presumably the captain had judged it a good time to leave this war zone. My thirst grew ever greater, but I could not hear the familiar clinking of bottles and glasses that was the welcome sound of Knox at work. I was about to say something when there was the unmistakably horrific sound of a bottle breaking. I stood up and spun round. Knox stood still as a statue, a cavalry sabre held against his throat by a familiar looking woman. Knox apologised for the broken bottle of gin and I bade him not to think about it. Not right now anyway. I slowly made my way forward, my hands raised to show I meant no threat. My right hand inched forward and grasped another bottle of gin tightly. The woman was definitely the same individual I had seen leading the Napoleonic troops as the city collapsed into war. I raised the bottle. Cocktail? I asked in a friendliest manner as I could manage. I could see her brain working quickly behind her eyes, trying to decide what to do. She looked the worse for wear, presumably only narrowly escaping from the terrible battle. She slowly lowered the sabre, evidently deciding to trust us, and said, I thought you'd never ask. That seems like a good place to stop. So until next time, fellow survivors, I'm Richard Oliver, and this has been a real tour of post-apocalyptic England. At the end of the line was written and recorded by Richard Oliver. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at postapocpodcast. Anyone want to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help, should tweet us or send us an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. Today's advice. Anyone who has travelled back in time and become their own grandfather or grandmother should go to the Central Government Authority website for information on chronically displaced tax credits, specialist daycare and paradox-proof university fund savings accounts to help provide for their slash your future.